The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. All right. So just a quick rewind on the last couple weeks of suffering, but then, like I said, this is going to be something of a gear shift today. Um, we said a, a couple weeks ago that suffering showcases God's glory, and that prompts us to proclaim the gospel, live with integrity, and trust in God's justice. So we see uh, a, a means, or excuse me, an end of suffering, a purpose for suffering is the glory of God. And we're going to take a, a, a wider look at the, the glory of God behind what the Lord chooses to do uh, in our time together today. Last week we talked about persecution. We said Christian persecution is unique to followers of Jesus, and faithfulness under it is essential for our spiritual growth and glorifying God. And we looked at persecution really like a, like a spectrum um, that you know, we can think about brothers and sisters on the other side of the world undergoing all manner of persecution, uh, whether it's their lives being endangered, their property being seized, homes and church buildings being destroyed, being thrown in jail, uh, take a step maybe back from that and having um, job limitations, not being able to, um, to move up in a career, um, conflict within families, all manner of things, to maybe what is perhaps more common to us, where the general temperature and worldview of the people around us is uh, increasingly not just indifferent to the gospel, but becoming more and more hostile and opposed. And we see that in various ways in the world now. We talked about it in academic circles. We talked about it in vocational circles. And only the Lord knows what the future of that will be in, in our lives and in our context. But we looked at persecution like a spectrum. That we talked about harassment and opposition for the sake of our identity with Christ. And that uh, not being an exception to God's providential rule, but a means by which he is using even to extend the gospel. We went to places in Acts to see uh, how in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And by the time you get to Acts 8-1, the intense persecution there in Jerusalem was driving Christians out into those surrounding regions. So the fulfillment of his promise in 1-8 didn't come um, despite the persecution, but really because of. The persecution was instrumental in that. Um, but to get us to where we are today, just a reminder... Um, we're, we're basically doing kind of a scripture blitz today on the glory of God, um, which will hopefully give us assurance that our suffering falls into the category of things that God means to use for his own glory. And in light of that, we should be encouraged by what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.19, that we can entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It, if we are committed to the glory of God, and we believe He is committed to His glory, and suffering is a means by which He glorifies Himself, that is hope and assurance for us while we are suffering, that we can entrust ourselves to Him. So, uh, I found this quote from John Piper helpful, looking to your packet. 
trying to understand what we mean when we say the glory of God. Kind of a hard thing to define. Of course, I've got this definition up there, uh, so don't read that off the board when I say, how would you define the glory of God? There's what one person says, but when we're told to do everything, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God, what is the glory of God? Or what does it mean to glorify God? Okay, so the spotlight is on Him. Our, our attention is directed to Him. I think that's right. Other ways that you would conceptualize what it means that we are to do things for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of the step on to the foundation and laid. So step one would be my attention is on him. And then step two is acknowledging what I see when I see that. His greatness, his beauty, his majesty, his power. All, all of the things that are in God and recognizing that. And I would add a third layer onto that would be, I'm gonna, let's make that step four. I'll make step three loving that. So directing our attention there, what do we see there? Loving that and then making that known. Which I've, I've read this before and I've understood it for a long time intellectually, but um, when you... When you see something beautiful or great or majestic, there wells up in you an incompleteness in your enjoyment of that until you have shared that with someone. And this is true in a lot of different things. Uh, I had a reminder of that um, sometime in the last few days. There was like this purpley-pink pastel sunset the other day. I don't know if y'all saw this, but... um, I think Rebecca and I were inside like getting dinner ready and one of my kids had walked by the door and they were like, oh my goodness, look at the sunset. Did, I'm seeing nodding heads. Did y'all see this the other day? I don't remember what day of the week it was, but it was last few days. And I step aside and, and look out through our garage door and there is this like pinkish glow on my truck in the driveway and the sunset was so beautifully radiant that it was like causing all of the things that I could see to glow with that color. And so I go out there and I stand outside in my driveway and just look out and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. And I ran inside and I was like, Rebecca, you gotta come see this. And she's like stirring up stuff on the stove and I'm like grabbing her I'm like, no, like, like she was gonna miss it in like five seconds. And so like we pull her outside and That's what happens when we see things that are beautiful, that we enjoy, that bring us joy. There is that, I want to share this. I want other people to enjoy this. So in glorifying God, our attention is directed to Him. What we see there is who who He is. That 
and list any of the attributes of God, um, which, as His people, we should love more and more, and then desire to share that with others. This is how Piper defines it. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. So for God to be motivated by His glory, we mean, like Charlie was careful to point out, which is right, we are not beautifying God. We're not taking something or someone and sprucing Him up to look good so that people can appreciate it. We're not putting, you know, lipstick on a pig. It's, we're not beautifying God. We are appreciating the beauty that is there. So for God to be motivated by His glory, it means that He is pleased to display His beauty and greatness. And then in revealing that to people, it is for us to praise and enjoy Him. Which makes sense if you think about why there is creation at all. Why would God create anything if He doesn't need anything? Paul tells the uh, people what in Athens, God is not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything. And it's like, well, so why did He make everything? Why create anything at all if there is no need within God? If there is infinite harmony and unity and love for all eternity, past and future, in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, why make anything at all? And I think, and I hope I can demonstrate from our passages today, that it is for that glory to be seen, known, and praised and enjoyed in the things that He has made. Okay, so handful of Old Testament passages, handful of New Testament passages that will be central to our time today. So there's going to be a lot of flipping back and forth to your verse packet. Very plainly, creation exists for the glory of God. You're familiar with Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. That was the experience. We had Psalm 19.1 in my driveway a few days ago. There is an incompleteness even in appreciating that without appreciating the author, the creator of that. So, wow, this is beautiful is really what needs to be underlying that in order for it to be glorifying to God is God made that. Wow. How powerful and how wise and how wonderful is God to do that. And that we can enjoy that. How gracious is He? Michael likes to say, man, food didn't have to taste good, right? <clears throat> so creation, the things that God has made, exists for His glory, declares His glory. If you look at the establishment of Israel and God calling this people to Himself, He established His people for His glory. Some passages from Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. 
whom I formed and made. Isaiah 49, 3, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And then Jeremiah 13, 11, For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. So why is there creation? Creation declares the glory of God. Even the sky above us is proclaiming His handiwork. The people that God calls by His own name, He has created for His glory, to make Him known, to shine forth who He is and love and have joy in Him. Of course, we see in the story of the Old Testament, and um, Jeremiah highlights this, the people of Israel's inability to do that. They would not listen. Jesus, the true and better Israel, stands in the place for his people and then gives them his spirit so that we will listen. Creation exists for the glory of God. The people of God exist for the glory of God. Look at Exodus. God judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians for his glory. Exodus 9.16 But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Exodus 14.4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Why is God bringing plagues on the Egyptians and on Pharaoh and bringing the people to the Red Sea only to have the sea come crashing down over all of the host of the Egyptians chasing the Israelites so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth, so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. We could spend a long time talking about the Exodus and God bringing judgment on the Egyptian gods as well as Pharaoh, their representative, and that's not our purpose for today. But you see in the acts of God in Exodus, that, that repetition of the idea that I am the Lord. He is showing His people, and in this case also the Egyptians and Pharaoh, who is the one true God. He is going to have His name proclaimed in all the earth. And if you keep reading the story of the Old Testament, as the people of Israel start getting towards the promised land and encountering other nations, news has spread about what the God of Israel has done. And you have people trying to make treaties with them because we know what he did to the Egyptians and we don't want that to happen to us. So let's see if we can uh, you know, sneak in there. The name, that name of that people group is escaping me right now. Um, but you have that sort of thing going on out of fear. Uh, when you think about um, Rahab, she knows what has happened. News has spread into Jericho about what the Lord has done for his people as they have come through the wilderness. So that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth, that is happening from the word go there in Exodus and throughout Israel's wanderings. God is glorifying himself through the judgments that he brought on Pharaoh and the Egyptians and their gods. Um, in his mercy, we see that. God spared his sinful people for his glory. Several passages, starting with Psalm um, 106. 
Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Ezekiel twenty fourteen. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. 1 Samuel 12, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Um, The Bible is honest throughout about the sins and sinfulness of people. And the people of God are no exemption to that. We are sinners in need of redemption. And God has provided for that ultimately in and through Christ. Here, as the people are in Egypt and as you know, they get into the time of judges and, and kings, you have reminders of God not forsaking His people and acting towards them in mercy and love, not because they deserved it, but for the sake of His name not being profaned. He saved them for His namesake, that they may make, may make known His power, that His name should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. For His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. I remember, but I didn't write down the... Uh, conversation, I think it's between Moses and the Lord, about the Lord, you know, wiping out all the people and not going before them in battle. And, and Moses is concerned about the name and reputation of the Lord. What will the nations think about you if this happens to us? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And he... He here defends his reputation, his name, not because of what the people's righteousness has merited, but because he chose them to be his, and in defending them and being merciful to them, he is maintaining his own reputation in the sight of the nations. Um, okay, so he spared his sinful people for... His glory. Hold that idea in your mind because that becomes a um, a burr in the saddle of some because of the gospel. That how can God glorify Himself in sparing sinners? How is it that that is actually a demonstration of God's glory and not an abuse of His glory, not a defaming of His glory? The the, the gospel uh, for for some especially in Paul's day as he's dealing with the arguments, is a quite scandalous thing in saying, you are forgiven by grace. So how is it that the glory of God is actually known and magnified in the sparing of sinners? We'll hopefully get to that. From Isaiah 48, we see that God patiently refined His people through suffering kind of our topic for this block. He patiently refined His people through suffering for His glory. 
For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So not only in his mercy towards us, but also in his refining grace to us, in conforming us into his own image, he is doing it for his sake. All of this is not to say that God does not act for our sake. The thing that I think connects these two, well, I guess I should say these two things are connected. They aren't two separate things. Like, a lot of times we we think about His glory and our good as if they were just existing in two separate spheres that aren't related to one another. I think what connects them is what we talked about at the very beginning. The people of God should want and enjoy and love the glory of God. So when God glorifies Himself, that is good for us, His people. We should want Him to be exalted and glorified. We should want Him in knowing just something of who He is for, like Anne said, the spotlight to be on Him and for people to see and apprehend and love that. So His glory and our good are are really wed together. The glory of God is good for His people. And in knowing that, in treasuring that, in enjoying that, in experiencing that, and growing to become like Him, that is good for us. So, let's make sure we don't keep these two things out here. Like, well, okay, so... I'm becoming increasingly convinced that God does what He does for His own glory, but that kind of makes me feel left out. Our unity to Him in Christ means that His glorification of Himself is not only good for us, but in being in and with Christ, that is ultimately, He he is bringing us to glory in and with Him. So these things are wed together. They're not competing interests. They're only competing interests for people who do not love the glory of God. Um, Okay. God gave the people the land for His glory. 2 Samuel 7, 23. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be His people, making Himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. He made himself a name, doing for them great and awesome things by driving out the people from the land. So as they're coming through the wilderness and into the promised land, and he is handing the land over to them, God is making a name for himself. We saw that a little bit already as the reputation of God had spread by the time the Israelites got to the borders of the promised land and he has the reputation of being the one who delivered them from the Egyptians. I think by the time of Saul, if I'm not mistaken, you have the Philistines reflecting on that. Uh, during the time of 1 Samuel, uh, the Philistines 
uh, recognize this. Of course, the Philistines are closer to Egypt um, than, than much of the rest of Canaan, so that's not surprising geographically. Um, but in, in bringing them to and giving them the land, God, like Charlie said, has made himself a name. His reputation goes before. And then uh, another place in the Old Testament, we'll look at Ezekiel and Isaiah to see that God promised a new covenant for His glory. Ezekiel 36, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In the promise of the new covenant, we see that in places like Ezekiel and and Jeremiah in particular, God promises that he's going to write his law on the hearts of his people, that they will know him, that they will desire him, that he will empower, even ensure their obedience, their repentance to him. Coming with the new covenant is the promise of the full forgiveness of sins. You know, when we get to that point in in Hebrews, we see that it's ultimately insufficient for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We have in Christ the perfect provision, the, the Son of God, the Redeemer, the Savior, shedding His own blood for our forgiveness, sealing the new covenant in His blood. And what does that mean for the people of God? It means forgiveness. It means reconciliation to God. It means the gift of the Holy Spirit. It means all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, like Paul says in Ephesians 1. Here in Ezekiel 36 and in Isaiah, a layer is pulled back for, for us to see that God is acting for the sake of His holy name. He is forgiving transgressions for the sake of His glory. And you think about that for a second and you go, well... How is it that that's not primarily for my good? Again, if we're trying to, you know, see that these things are, are they, are they wed together or not? Because it seems, uh, maybe at first glance, that the forgiveness of sins seems to be primarily directed at me, the sinner, and not primarily directed at God, the one who has been sinned against. There's a number of things that we could say there, but think about, for example, what is the right posture of the person whose sin has been forgiven? We are directed back to praise the glories of God's grace in forgiveness and His kindness and compassion to us in Christ. So the good that He has wrought for us in the new covenant, in the giving of Christ, in the redeeming of us to Himself is ultimately for the purpose of us praising His glorious grace. That doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Our response to that should be humble, joyful gratitude, praising His grace. Does that make sense? Again, it's, 
like Anne started us with, it's constantly turning our attention on to the giver. Um, did I read both of those? Ezekiel and Isaiah? Yes. Okay, so this is a good time to pause as we get to the end of the Old Testament for comments, questions. Timothy, go ahead. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that, that's connected from our Old Testament passages to um, you know, his sparing of his people. Ultimately, we see that, that great forgiveness won by Christ. Which is another, uh, it's a good reminder, Timothy, that it, what we do when we gather on Sundays shouldn't be the only time we do this, but we do take time each Sunday in confession of sin, in quiet reflection on our own lives. Of course, today we're also taking the Lord's Supper, so we try to provide a little extra time just for reflection and prayer in terms of our own specific sins and um, confessing those things to the Lord, rejoicing in, in the hope that we have in the gospel. If we have no um, reflection on those things that the Word sheds light on, we will be the people who tend to not see themselves as having, having been forgiven very much. But in acknowledging the weight and the gravity of sin, we are in a better position to glorify the forgiver even more as we have a more right perspective on sin. I, I think one of the first times I read Psalm 51, I was like, hold on a second, David, for real? Against you, you only have I sinned? Because when I read the story in, in Samuel about what David did to Uriah and Bathsheba, I was like, I have a running list of the people that you have sinned against, David. I don't think that's David's way of saying, I did not sin against Bathsheba and I did not sin against Uriah. But the glory of God is so great that he is overcome by the magnitude of who he has sinned against. And in appreciating the eternal glory of God, and then seeing our sin in light of that, we are positioned to glorify Him all the more in our forgiveness. Yes, of course. Which, again, there's a lot of things we could say about that, but when Jesus goes around saying your sins are forgiven, people are like, hang on, what? How are you going to just say your sins are forgiven? So yes, sin is first and foremost against God. That's, there is a claim to divinity in Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Um, in, in recognizing, having a more biblical view of the glory of God and our own sinfulness, we're positioned to appreciate His forgiveness even more and glorify Him for it. Um, Okay, a few passages from Ephesians 1, starting our New Testament section. God chose His people in Christ for His glory. Ephesians 1, 3-6, 12, and 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. We can get bent out of shape on some of the things in Ephesians 1 and we can have arguments over what the predestination and uh, choosing us is and th- my goal is, is not to really try to open that can of worms. For today's purposes, I want you to see in Ephesians 1 the refrain to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glory. You can argue about Calvinism and Arminianism until you're blue in the face, but if you, if you miss the praise of His glory in Ephesians 1, you're not seeing the end for the things that Paul has written there. Why has he done what he has done for his people in Christ? For the praise of his glorious grace. If we're not praising the glories of God's grace, it really doesn't matter what we believe about Ephesians 1 and predestination and election and Calvinism and all the rest. These things are done to the praise of his glory. What he has given us in and through Christ is that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace. The emphasis on his work and not ours in what he does for us. Um, Okay, our good works in Christ are for God's glory. In Matthew 5, 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The, the illustration that Anne used, you know, if you're holding the source of a light and pointing it away from yourself, what's visible is not you, but what the light is being shined upon. That is the idea, that good works are meant not for the flashlight to be on us, but to be away from us. The works are meant to be seen for the glory of God, not for our own praise. And Ephesians 2 says we are not saved by works. We are saved by faith alone through, uh, by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But there are good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good works are, are intended for the glory of God in sort of a twofold way. There's not only that the doing of them is meant to, to shine away from us, but if that's the only thing that we said about good works then we could say, well, why? If I'm the one doing the work, shouldn't I be the one who gets the praise? Ephesians remind us that the works themselves have been prepared for us. So that we have work to do is all of grace. The strength that we have to do it is all of grace. The will that we have to do it is all of grace. So it's not just, well, I did the work, but somebody else got credit for it. It's, he gave you the work, he gave you the strength and desire to do it. He is the giver in every sense of that. And so he gets the glory. You gotta, you know, balance the erroneous tendency towards fatalism that just says, well, if it's God, then I guess I'll be a couch potato. Like that's, we recognize that's not, that's not biblical. 
He gives you the strength. He gives you the work to do. We're accountable to Him for the doing of it. But we don't take credit for the doing of it because it wasn't our works and it wasn't our strength and it wasn't our will at work. God is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The the good works then not only testify to others about the goodness and glory of God, they also should testify to us that we belong to Him. In having things to do provided providentially by God for His glory, that is one way He tells you, you belong to me. I do this for my children. I give my children in Christ things to work for my glory. Suffering is one of those things. That's what's been... I think one of the difficult things about this block for me is having that conceptually like generalized idea like, yeah, 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 yeah. But then like your car breaks down or you got conflict with somebody or you got the diagnosis or the job loss or, you know, whatever it is. And at least for me, I kind of want that his glory and my good, they're kind of being pulled apart in my mind. That's it. I don't know if this is true for you, but as I am stretched in trials, the fleshly temptation is to see those two things being pulled apart. And I, you can become embittered then if you maintain a commitment to God's glory that you don't think is also tied to your ultimate good. Because then you can say, well, I guess he's just... I guess this is for his glory, or maybe resentfully, I guess this is for my good. But when we see those things pulled apart and not wed together, we can become bitter and resentful, especially when we are tried. So watch yourself. Be, be prayerful in examining yourself in trials to see where you might be tending to be embittered by the idea of God doing what he does for his glory, even if he chooses to bring that to you in the form of very painful suffering. The Lord really means it when he says he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What's the purpose we've been called for? Glorifying God in the gospel. So, the pen thief at work, that's for your good, just as much as anything else. And praise God, he's given you eyes to see that. That's the thing. Is I hope one of the things in, in, in this block is that I hope prayerfulness is increased. For us to ask the Lord, like, what is it that you are doing? Like, what, what, what do you want me to see and learn from the pen thief? The things that are, are constantly the, the thorn in the flesh, thorns get your attention. They, that's what they're there for. Pain reminds you that something, something is either amiss that needs to be corrected, or God is getting your attention in some way. Don't take Timothy's pens. If you see him on the back row, give that brother a pen. Is that what you want to unwrap on Christmas? (laughs) 
Oh, it's suffering this year. It's been granted. Yeah. Yeah. Granted to suffer for his name. Um, Jesus always pursues God's glory. I've lost my spot here. Uh, John seven eighteen. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. John fourteen thirteen. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 12, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So what is Jesus committed to? In his earthly ministry, he is committed to the glory of his Father. What he is doing, when we talk about the, the, the sinlessness of Jesus, For the sake of our purposes today, that's how I would encourage you to think about it. Not just like, okay, Jesus lays his head down at night and goes, all right, today I did not murder, steal, commit adultery. Like, I followed all the do-nots. I did all the do's. I checked it off. I don't think that's a right way to really understand the full magnitude of the sinlessness of Jesus. Everything he did was motivated by a pure and undefiled love for God and a desire for him to be glorified. That is, I think, different than Jesus didn't lie. Jesus didn't kill anybody. Do you see what I mean? Jesus didn't covet. The law is an expression of God's holiness, but Jesus actually loves the holiness of God. He treasures it. He desires that for his people. He always pursues that. And so in him, we are being transformed into the kind of people who think about this in your own relationship to God. Is your standing before God by grace one of, when you lay your head down at night, is the comfort you have, well, I didn't lie today, I didn't steal today, I didn't commit adultery today, I tried to avoid those do-nots, I tried to focus on the do's. If that is your hope when you lay down your head at night, that is not the gospel. When you lay down your head at night, the rest that you have ultimately is in Christ Himself. Your assurance and your hope is tied not to the do's and do-nots that you have obeyed, or in our case, failed to obey, but in Christ who has done it perfectly on our behalf. You love the glory of God in the gospel. You will be transformed more into the people of God who, when you lay down your head at night, that is what your mind will be filled with. You will recognize your sin as an offense against a holy God who loves you and who has given you a love for Him. And that is what will cause you to fear and tremble at the idea of sin to begin with. 
It won't be just a shamed conscience issue. It will be, my Father loves me, and He knows what's good for me. This is defaming to Him and destructive to me. That does not proclaim the glories of God in the way that He intends. Those are the kinds of things that we should be thinking about. And so, Jesus' pursuit of God's glory is one of loving it and treasuring it, treasuring it perfectly. And the obedience to God, for our sake, flows out of that. It doesn't lead to that. We get the gospel upside down when we make it about works. Yeah. Let that give you a, a new appreciation of like Jesus healing the lepers. Which way does cleanliness flow in Christ? Is it uncleanness transmitted to him or is it cleanness transmitted to his people? The cleanness flows from him to his people. Enjoy the fact that he is unstained by your depravity and you are the recipient of his purifying grace. we got to move super quick. Go ahead, Timothy. Yeah. We're going to go uh, light speed to the last few ones. Christ's welcome of his people and ours of one another is for the glory of God. In Romans 15, 17, which is uh, sort of a climactic statement in the book of Romans, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So there's that, that welcoming or accepting of one another in the body of Christ for the glory of God. Very plainly, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, everything we do should be for God's glory. Our ministry within the body of Christ is for the glory of God. Our sanctification in Christ is for the glory of God. The return of Christ is for the glory of God. You're going to have to take these and read the verses on, on your own because I've let us go over. And then lastly, God's people will see and enjoy Jesus' glory with Him forever. So, I hope that, th this is one, like if I were to teach this block again, I would probably put this one very early on, um, probably within the first three weeks, um, because I want it to help be foundational in our thinking when we encounter suffering, to, to have our, our minds and our hearts anchored in, what is God doing? Because I think that's one of the questions that we ask when we are confused and, um, and feeling the pain of suffering is, God, what are you doing? And he has not left us clueless as to what he is doing and why he is doing what he is doing. He brings glory to himself and he brings good to us in a way that is united. And whatever the circumstances then, we rejoice not in, in them, but in him and his faithfulness. So we can end where we began. 1 Peter 4.19 
We should entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, one more, one more Sunday, right? And then new blocks. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.